Hello friends, welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. All right. So last week, we started into the jhanas. I gave an overview. If you have not taken a listen to that podcast, if you weren't here, um, definitely take a listen to that one. Uh, this one is self-contained, but a lot of the background was given last week. So we're going to talk about jhana, and as I mentioned last week, it is a complex topic. It's a little bit of an advanced topic. So it presumes that you have a pretty good understanding of the Eightfold Path. It presumes that you've been meditating for a little while. Maybe you've gone on a retreat and that you have some sense of the enlightenment factors, the hindrances, the Four Noble Truths, because it uses all of that material to create the jhana experience. So if you're not very comfortable with that material, it's totally fine that some of this is going to feel abstract or um, a little out of reach, but that's fine because it will plant seeds. And when those seeds are ready to blossom, you will have had the information as background and it will be easier to make the transition. I am just going to give an overview really quickly on the basics of Vipassana that are required for jhana practice, just the, the obvious ones that we're all fairly familiar with. So our Vipassana practice, I'll say one more thing. Uh, and I think I said this last week, it's just important to know that jhana practice is not a separate practice traditionally. It's just a more in-depth practice that you're already doing. So you're already doing all of the things that you need to do to have the experience. The experience comes to fruition as your practice matures. So technically, it's not really a different practice. It's just Vipassana at a deeper level. So I prefer to frame it like that. So when we think of our Vipassana practice, our Satipatthana practice, or insight meditation, let's just remind ourselves that one of the primary goals of insight meditation is to cultivate particular heart-mind skills or qualities that allow us to gain fairly deep access to the present moment, being awake and aware to what is happening right here and right now. We do that because that is where life is taking place. Life takes place in the present. And when we can train our heart and mind to be present, then we have access to aspects of ourselves that are normally out of reach. And one of the things we gain access to through present moment experience is realizing that we are co-creating the experience, that both happiness and suffering are creations of the heart and mind. And with practice, we can enter into the present moment and cultivate a heart that is free from suffering and let go from habits that keep us trapped in stress and pain. So that's the basics of Vipassana. We're looking into the present moment so we can learn to cultivate long-term habits of well-being that lead to liberation and to let go of habits that are trapping us in suffering. That's the main process of Vipassana. And as most of us are familiar, 
the habits that we're letting go of are the hindrances, the five hindrances, craving, aversion, sloth and torpor, doubt, restlessness, agitation, worry. Those are the categories of habits that we're letting go of. And then we abandon those habits with this effort and energy to replace them with our factors of awakening, our enlightenment factors, mindfulness, concentration, equanimity, effort, curiosity, also known as investigation, and tranquility and joy, or rapture and joy, depending on the translation. So what we're doing is we're entering into the present to let go of certain things that are burdening our hearts and to replace them with habits that are refreshing and give us a sense of ease and well-being with this highest aspiration to have those qualities in balance to lead to what the Buddha refers to as enlightenment or an ultimate freedom. During this whole process, we also use three major ideas, anicca, impermanence, anatta, not-self or empty of self, and dukkha, stress or discontent. We use these three fabrications or perceptions to gain insight into the nature of who we are. We look at the selfless nature of the human experience. We look at the suffering nature of what it is to be human. And we get really in touch with the impermanent nature of the human experience. For those of you who were at the last retreat, impermanence was our major theme where we talked about why impermanence was such a big deal in the Dharma. It's a huge topic and we enter the present moment to feel directly the impermanent, changing, empty phenomena that we usually refer to as a self. So that's Vipassana. Vipassana is that experience. And as that experience matures, we have this experience called jhana. You could say, I guess, that the path to jhana begins when we start to manage and abandon the hindrances. That the path of jhana really begins at the moment that we can really befriend the hindrances and start letting them go. Sometimes when I think of, I mean, the practice sort of moves in stages, but as you know, it's like you move three steps forward and two steps back in the Dharma. It's not like a linear process where it's A, B, C, enlightenment, uh, or I say A, B, C, D, enlightenment. Um, it's not like that. So, but I will say that there are phases that are pretty routine for all meditators. And the first phase is getting to know the hindrances. We really need to manage them, learn to not go to war with them, learn to accept them into the present moment and lean into them even and touch them deeply with our heart to really feel the suffering that the hindrances are. As we begin to let go of the five hindrances, the five hindrances are replaced by what we call the five jhana factors. So if we look at the hindrances as unskillful habits that cause pain and suffering, the factors of jhana or the heart-mind qualities that we call the jhana factors are the qualities that arise in their place. So you have to be at a point in practice where you really are consistently letting go of the hindrances because as that happens, that's when the factors of jhana arise. Another way of looking at it, I suppose, would be the moment or the moments that you can really keep the mind from wandering. When you can encourage the mind to gently stay in the present moment, that's when you'll start to see the jhana factors in awareness. Because 
when the mind stops wandering, the jhana factors arise. So basically, and I, I know I've said this before in other Dharma talks, other podcasts, that whenever the mind wanders, it wanders away with a hindrance. So if the mind is wandering, hindrances are present. So every time the mind wanders, there's some craving or aversion in consciousness, no matter how subtle, that's carrying or sweeping away the mind into the present, into the past. And so in terms of the jhanas, as we abandon the hindrances, the mind starts to settle down. And as it settles down, the heart-mind qualities that arise are the five factors of jhana. I will, like I said, send out a handout that will give the, the lists and stuff for this, so it won't be so confusing. When we look at this thing called the five factors of jhana, or the jhana factors, what they really are is just the seeds of our seven factors of awakening. What they really are is a bridge between the hindrances and the enlightenment factors. And what I mean by that is that as we explore the jhana factors, you'll begin to see clearly that the jhana factors are just the enlightenment factors at an earlier stage, or they're like, they're like the baby enlightenment factors, essentially. So when we say jhana factors, know that they are not actually different from the enlightenment factors. It's like the enlightenment factors before they get strong enough to give you awakening. Jhana factors are heart-mind qualities that are strong enough to produce what we call jhana, but not strong enough to produce awakening itself. So it's the beginning stages of the birth of the awakening factors. It's the same heart-mind qualities, but at a lesser energy. And I'll, again, I'll give you a list that will cross-reference these and you can see clearly what I'm talking about. But just want you to familiarize yourself with the jhana factors. These are factors you'll need to be able to recognize directly in experience because you'll have to play with them a little bit to have jhana arise. So let me go through the factors. I'll go through the factors. There's five factors of jhana. And the first two sets come in pairs. They come in pairs. So the first two jhana factors are directed thought and evaluation. And I do have a few podcasts on this. So if this is something you want to dive into and don't know a lot about, um, the directed thought and evaluation, verbal fabrication, it's in the podcast and you'll be able to find some pretty good talks on this. But directed thought and evaluation are the first two heart-mind qualities of the jhanas. Vitaka vikara is what it's in Pali. And let me just explain what these words mean. They're really counterintuitive and not very helpful. Uh, but once you understand them, they work just fine. But they really are off-putting and um, they're so confusing the way this is set up. So directed thought and evaluation, vitaka and vikara. Vitaka comes from the root word to think, to think. So vitaka vikara, to think, to reflect. So directed thought is the part of the mind that we can direct towards an object of meditation. That's really what it means. It's like we're going to direct our thinking energy to the breath instead of thinking about the past and the future. We're going to direct the thinking stream of energy and direct that thought to the breath, to the body, to the anatomical parts, to loving kindness. So directed thought really means we're taking the thinking energy of consciousness and directing it towards meditation practice. We're pulling it away from craving, 
pulling it away from aversion, and we're intentionally directing it to our meditation object. And I'll clarify this in a second, but we have vikara, which is the second word, which is evaluation. And this word has its roots in basically moving something around, which is translated as investigating, evaluating, um, examining, or deliberating. It is an evaluative process of consciousness. Most of us know directed thought and evaluation as this constant chatter in the back of our heads, right? In the back of, not in the back of our heads, in the back of our minds. So directed thought and evaluation is how the mind's constantly talking to itself. It's constantly evaluating everything that's coming in. Thinking of this, reflecting on that, judging this, wondering about that, worrying. Directed thought and evaluation is how the mind talks to itself, evaluates what's coming in. And in meditation, we want to take that energy and move it away from the craving and aversion. And we want to direct it to the breath, right? We want to direct it to the body. We want to evaluate the sensations of breathing body. We want to evaluate heart-mind qualities. We don't want to evaluate the past or direct and thought, direct and think towards the future. We want to pull this energy into the present moment. Anyone who's ever sat down to meditate and brought the breath into awareness is engaging Vitaka Vikara. You're already engaging directed thought and evaluation when you pick a meditation object. So the words just don't land for us, but that's really all it's referring to. There is an alternate definition that some jhana schools use for these two words, which are more literal to the meditation. Some of them define vitaka as initial application of attention, initial application of attention, and vikara as sustained attention, which just means I'm initially bringing awareness to an object, my breath, and I'm sustaining it. Initial application, I'm intending to bring something into awareness, and I'm holding on to it. Both of the definitions are actually correct, but the schools debate whether one is accurate and one is not. A thing to know, and I've said this in other Dharma talks and other podcasts, that the word thinking, as it's used in the Dharma, doesn't always mean discursive thought, like words. You can evaluate something that's going on in your heart and mind without thinking about it in words. So oftentimes when we say directed thought and evaluation, we're not actually talking about full-blown sentences that might be rattling around in your head. We're just talking about knowing what's happening. So for example, for example, I wrote a few uh, common examples of how we're already doing this in our meditation. Most of you are aware that in the Satipatthana Sutta, when you begin your sit, the Buddha asks you to reflect, are, is my breathing short or is it long? Is the in-breath short? Is the out-breath long? And to notice the length of breathing. That's directed thought and evaluation. You're evaluating, is my breath long or short? Now you might think the thought, but you can just turn your awareness to the breath and kind of notice, well, this one's longer, this one's shorter, this one's medium. That's what he means when he says directed thought and evaluation. Another way that we're already doing this process, we ask ourselves, where in my body is there suffering? Oftentimes when I start a sit, I'll invite you to scan your body and notice if there's tension. 
That is directed thought and evaluation. You're asking yourself, is there any tension in the body? Now, you might not be asking it in words, but from a Dharma perspective, it's that part of the brain that's operating. So if you look at it like you're choosing the object and you're wondering about it, you're in good shape because that's all we're really talking about with this jhana factor. We're already doing it when we meditate. Another thing we might ask ourselves is, what's the most skillful thing to do in this moment? Are the hindrances present? Can I find any enlightenment factors? Those are all evaluative energies of the Dharma that we do standard in Vipassana practice, except they call it directed thought and evaluation. So that's our initial jhana factor. Those two come together at the same time because they work back and forth. Our next two jhana factors are ones you're already familiar with from our enlightenment factors, which is rapture and pleasure or rapture and tranquility. The pleasure, the pleasure part of the path. The words that we use in Pali are piti and sukha. Piti is rapture and sukha is tranquility or a mild pleasure. I'll explain the difference in a second. The translations are so similar between these two words and people debate them, <laughs> debate them constantly. So I'm just going to give you three words for each and you'll see that they're basically the same thing. And then I'll help you understand the experiential difference between these two. So PT is often translated as bliss, joy, or exuberance. Sometimes it can be translated as ecstasy. That is probably an exaggeration, but sometimes it's translated as ecstasy. Sukha is also translated as bliss and joy, but it's also translated as happiness or a calm pleasure. So really, they're two sides of the same coin. Piti and Sukha are two different ways we experience pleasure in our meditation. If you've ever experienced any pleasure in your meditation, that is what you've experienced, these jhana factors. That's what you've experienced. So it's not magical. It's not a mystery. Any time of you're experiencing pleasure bubbling up, that's what we're talking about. The distinction, though, I'm going to give is very important for the practice of jhana. PT, which is often translated as the energized ecstasy or the rapture part of our experience, is often more uplifting and energizing. It is, and it's an uplifting energy. So it's a pleasure and a happiness, but it rises up in intensity. Where sukha feels calming, it's a downward pleasure, which is why sometimes PT is called rapture and sukha is called tranquility. So one is energizing and one is calming, but they're both pleasurable, and that's the main, the main point. When you experience PT, this differs from person to person, but PT can be energy rippling through the body. It can be a sense of energy that feels almost restless or agitating, like you've drank too much coffee, right? That's what it kind of feels like sometimes, that you're kind of like, wow, I'm kind of jittery right now. That's PT. Sometimes it can be tingly. Um, sometimes when people experience PT, they actually might see lights behind their eyes, like little balls of white light or it might feel like someone turned a bright light on in the room. The energy rises up and neurologically we see these lights 
that come. Um, they will not carry your way. They're nothing to fear. It's just the natural response to concentration. But PT and Sukha, one is energizing and one is more calming. That's the main distinction. Another distinction that meditators report, and not always across the board, is that PT often feels, because it's agitating, it feels more physical in the body. It really feels like energy moving. Where sukha, which is the calming factor, for a lot of people, it feels emotional. Like, you know how you get excited for something and how excitement has an energy to it? And that's really physical. But if you're just feeling really good, like maybe someone gave you a compliment or, you know, you're just having a really good day, that might feel more heart-centered, more emotional. That's how students tend to describe these two jhana factors. One is more physical and one is more mood or, yeah, heart-oriented, for lack of a better word. Everyone who's had meditation experience has had some form of relaxation and ease in the meditation. Those moments are one of these factors of jhana. So things we've already experienced before. So we have our directed thought and evaluation, which is the process we go through to pick an object and reflect on it in a way that calms the mind and pulls us away from craving and aversion. As vitaka vikara, as directed in thought, directed thought and evaluation become mature, the natural byproduct is piti and sukha, because as the mind calms, pleasure arises. So these four jhana factors work together to form the experience. Now, the fifth jhana, oh wait, let me say one more thing about the direct experience of PT and Sukha. It is important to know that people have the experience of these jhana factors differently depending on your, your makeup. And I don't know why this is. I don't think anyone does. Basically, either of these factors can be experienced very intensely, or it can be very subtle. It just depends. Some people experience the jhana factors very intensely, and some people experience them very subtly. Also, some people experience much more physical sensations in jhana, and other people really feel emotional as jhana arises. So you'll just have to see how you experience jhana. And the more you have the experience, the easier it is to discern what it is for you. It's not the same for everyone. It's in the same ballpark, but students will describe it differently. There'll be some similarities, but your own experience is going to be based on your heart-mind makeup. I'm not sure what makes the difference, but students will describe it to be different depending on the circumstance. One thing to note about PT and Sukha is that Directed thought and evaluation have to be done intentionally. You have to pick your meditation object and contemplate it. It's not going to happen by itself. But PT and Sukha can arise by itself. If you're just meditating on your object, PT and Sukha can arise without you doing anything. They can just bubble up and pass away and bubble up and pass away. So that's an interesting distinction between these factors is that Directed thought and evaluation has to be done intentionally. The byproduct of that is these other two factors, which is the pleasure. And you can cultivate PT and Sukha directly in your practice 
through loving kindness and gratitude practice. In fact, loving kindness and gratitude practices are gateways to the jhana and are often described as concentration practices. So you can engage in loving kindness practice and you can engage in gratitude practice to cultivate and learn to create these emotions. Later on, I'll explain to you how that works exactly. But just so you know, we have practices already that are designed to produce these. It's just part of Vipassana. So the last jhana factor, this is our fifth one. Our fifth one is one that we talked about last week. This is ekagata, one-pointed attention. One-pointedness or unification of mind. One-pointedness, singleness or unification of mind. We talked about this last week as being a sense of absorption of being so focused and our energy being really contained around the object to such a degree that we start absorbing into it. We really become one with the body and we become one with the breath. I've heard some teachers describe this as being the point in which awareness fills the body and the breath body and awareness feel like one thing. The whole body feels like it's breathing in and out, not just your lungs, not just your nose, but the whole energy starts to feel like it's infused or suffused within the waking body. So one pointedness is usually what we just refer to as concentration or samadhi. That's what we usually, that's our enlightenment factor of concentration, this one pointed attention. Experientially, it means that your mind has stopped wandering. One-pointedness means that your mind has stopped wandering. Until your mind stops wandering, and so if you have a couple moments in practice where the mind has stopped wandering, which we all get now and again, if we're lucky, the mind stops wandering for two or three minutes and it feels really good, that's one-pointed attention. Most of us have had that experience, right? Of The mind suddenly falls into place, it's with the breath, and three or four minutes, you're like, oh, I'm just with my breath. This is great. That is ekagata. That's the one-pointed attention because you're now fully in the moment with breathing. I'm going to read this quote from the Buddha. I can't remember which sutta this comes from, but he's talking to one of his students who is um, downplaying the need for the one-pointed attention. And the Buddha, I guess this is kind of scolding now that I look at the quote. The Buddha says, do not be negligent regarding the first jhana. Steady your mind in the first jhana. Unify your mind in the first jhana. Concentrate your mind in the first jhana. So one-pointed attention is that unity consciousness that occurs when the mind settles down into the present moment. So those are our five factors. Those are our five factors. Everyone who's done a, a reasonable amount of meditation has experienced these factors now and again. And I think that's something I really would like you to take home with you is that you're already experiencing these, even if they're very subtle. Learning to cultivate them intentionally and to balance them, that's what creates the jhana experience. It's taking Vipassana up to the next level that we tame the hindrances, as the Buddha says, we tame the hindrances. And as we tame the hindrances, these five factors come into balance 
and we start to play with them and mix them. Um, I think it was Tanisro Biku who said that the jhana factors are like ingredients in a recipe. It's not enough to have the ingredients. You can have the ingredients sitting on the counter, but you have to know in what proportions to use them, right? And how to add them together and mix them up. Otherwise you make a mess and it doesn't taste good. And so the jhana factors are arising and passing away in our meditation all the time. What we learn to do is to hold them, hold them in a space and balance them in such a way to produce what we call the jhanas. Okay. That is the first part of what I wanted to get to you tonight. There is a second part and I had a handout here and so let me think if I can let me think if I can pull this up. It might be helpful. I'm going to explain to you now about the, what we call the first jhana. What does this really mean? When you look at what we call the jhanas, let's just say this. There are four jhanas. And each jhana is simply a deeper level of experience. Each one is quieter, more pleasurable, and more still. So as we move through the jhanas... It's a pathway to an increased amount of pleasure, relaxation, and ease. So that's what's happening at this point in your practice. So let's talk about the first jhana and, and what happens in it. So as I was saying before, directed thought and evaluation, directed thought and evaluation, you can look at those just as the process of mindfulness. You pick your breath as your object, or maybe you're doing body scanning, and then you're evaluating. How is this feeling? What tools do I need to use? Do I need to move faster or slower? Do I need to change my breath? This is just the basic energy of meditation. So of course this has to be here. Now, as you sustain, evaluation also, as I said before, has this definition of sustained attention. As you sustain your attention on the breath, for a long enough period of time, we start to get these other two down here. We get rapture and we get pleasure, PT and sukha. Now, all four of these that I just mentioned, directed thought, evaluation, rapture, and pleasure, as these start to arise, one-pointedness begins to arise too, which is the saturation of the pleasure principles, right, of the rapture and the pleasure. So one pointedness is when the rapture and pleasure is really starting to feel good. It's actually flowing throughout the body. That's what happens with the rapture and pleasure. So let me explain how you would do the practice to have the experience of what we call the first jhana. Because as I said, having these five factors present is the first step. Once you have them present, then you do actually have to do something. And this is how you would actually do what we would call getting into the first jhana. So let us suppose I was using breath. I'm going to give, there's many ways to do this. So let me give you a couple examples. Let's say that I am using breath as my object of concentration. So my awareness is on my breath and I have breath in mind and I'm sustaining it. The mind starts to calm down. I really feel the in-breath. I really feel the out-breath. The point at which that you can notice that you're very much 
present with the breath for about, say, five or ten minutes, I would say. If you can maintain awareness on breathing and know it, be aware that you really are just with breath and the mind is not wandering off, right? That means your directed thought and evaluation is mature enough to begin to look for the other two jhana factors. So you don't actually have to be meditating that long to begin this process, but the mind has to be settled. So it may be that it's 20 minutes into your sit or 40 minutes into your sit that the mind gives up and really starts to be present with your breath. At that point, you know that directed thought and evaluation are mature enough to where jhana begins to become accessible. Now, if the mind is not wandering, then somewhere on the body, you are going to find rapture or pleasure. Somewhere on the body or in the emotional sphere, there's going to be a sense of ease and there's going to be a sense of well-being. If you can't find that in awareness, if you can't sweep through your body and feel a sense of ease and well-being, that tells you that the directed thought and evaluation has not been sustained long enough to produce the other two factors. So you just go back to your breathing. Okay, I need to stay with my breath longer. I need to stay for another few minutes. So what you're going to do is you're going to move back and forth between a concentrated mind and a looking out for pleasure in the meditation. Now, if you can find rapture and pleasure in your body, the next step is to bring awareness to one or both of those pleasurable sensations. What you're going to do is really locate it in the body. Is it in the chest or the belly? Do you have tingling, pleasant sensations in the hand or on the face? You really, this is part of the jhana practice, is to locate the factors. So you're going to bring awareness to rapture and pleasure. You're going to get to know them. And once you can find them on the body, the next step is to hold awareness on the actual feeling of pleasure. And that becomes your new object. You move away from the breath and you use rapture and pleasure as your object of concentration. You take the pleasure as the object. If you can do this successfully, PT and rapture will start to move and fill the body. It starts to fill the body and increase. It's like putting logs on a fire, right? Directed thought and evaluation is lighting the fire, but then bringing awareness to the rapture and pleasure stokes the fire, and that's what starts to generate the experience of jhana. So you are going to do something intentionally. If you remember back to my other Dharma talks or my podcast where I talked about verbal fabrication and mental fabrication and bodily fabrication, where you co-create experience, this is why I gave those talks. Because in the jhanas, we fabricate rapture and pleasure by finding them in the sphere of the body, holding them in awareness, and gently encouraging them to rise. We move the energy throughout the body until it feels like it's really saturated in experience. Now, at any point in time, if your mind starts wandering, the rapture and pleasure are going to get lost, and you'll know it because the mind will wander or the pleasure will be gone, and you'll have to take a step back and just do the directed thought and evaluation. Find the breath, be aware, 
maintain awareness on the breath until the mind stops wandering. And once it's sustained, you can go back and search for the pleasure factors. And you go back and forth like this. This is how it works. You keep going back and forth. And you don't always get it. You don't always get the factors, but you need to know how to look for them. The one-pointedness that you see here as the fifth factor actually becomes mature once you've been able to hold rapture and pleasure in the body long enough to allow it to really boil, so to speak, to, to increase in intensity. As it increases in intensity, you will feel like it's saturating your being, essentially. You'll start to feel like pleasure and rapture are saturating your being. Another way of going about this, so you can see the difference, if I didn't want to use my breath, I can use loving kindness. So what I would do is I would sit down and I'd probably start with some body sweeping and some breath meditation. And then I would say my loving kindness phrases. I would say my loving kindness phrases or gratitude phrases in a way where I'm really trying to imagine what I'm contemplating. So if I'm imagining the world being happy and free from suffering, I would really want to lean into that contemplation. Imagine what it would be like in a world where people are filled with joy, filled with happiness, filled with contentment. If I'm doing gratitude, I really want to strongly call to the altar of my heart the image of someone I care for or someone who's cared for me. I really want to call to the altar of my heart something that really makes me happy or makes me smile. Some teachers will say it's also helpful when you're cultivating the rapture and pleasure to actually physically smile. That's called bodily fabrication. To actually smile while you're imagining the freedom from suffering, while you're imagining what you're grateful for. Because that will intensify the experience of rapture and pleasure and makes it easier for you to find it in awareness and to hold it. And to hold it, contain it, and encourage it to sustain itself. So those are two ways of doing this part of the practice. So what happens? So what happens when I do this, right? Once mindfulness has been sustained, long enough for hindrances to die down, either rapture and pleasure are going to be there automatically, or you have enough concentration where you can create rapture and pleasure through gratitude, loving kindness, and quite a few other ones which we won't go into tonight, but you can either do them intentionally or you can look for them already in the body. What causes jhana, the jhana, to arise is when directed thought and evaluation are really stable, rapture and pleasure have been held long enough in awareness that they fill the body up and the mind is still not wandering and you begin to feel the one-pointed attention, the absorption into the experience. And what you're absorbing into, just to be clear, is pleasure. That's, what's, that's what you're absorbing into. The first jhana is a concentrated state where you absorb into pleasure. And the moment jhana occurs, you no longer have to do anything. The pleasure will saturate your body fully and it will just feel like it's you're meditating. The meditation is meditating you. That's the distinction. Some people, when they when jhana arises, they, they I've had this a couple times, uh, but a lot of students feel like 
there's this kind of pulling sensation or a like you're being sucked into the pleasure like it's a room and you've gotten sucked into the pleasure and it's all around you so it's really a sense of unity and a sense of fusion with the rapture and pleasure that's the first jhana so you can have the jhana factors all happening but you might not be in the jhana because it's just not strong enough and you just have to keep with the practice jhana arises when it arises we can't force it you just have to be with the pleasure you have to keep it in awareness and when your mind wanders you have to come back and reestablish directed thought and evaluation that's technically how you get into the first jhana now i don't want to go into too much detail tonight into these next parts but i do want to tell you what they are so you can understand when you're looking at this diagram let me take a look at my time. Okay, good. So once you're in the first jhana, you are essentially in a state of absorption into pleasure. It's very relaxing. It can be very euphoric, or it can just be a sense of ease, a real sense of ease. The mind, you know, the mind isn't going to wander at this point. It just simply doesn't go anywhere. Part of the reason it doesn't go anywhere is because the jhana is so pleasurable that the mind doesn't want to go anywhere else which is partly why jhana is so important in the Buddha's words, because it encourages the mind to stay present. So in the first jhana, you have these five factors. Now, if you look at the diagram, in each jhana, one of the factors disappears. The difference between the first jhana and the second jhana is that there's no directed thought and evaluation. It's just rapture and pleasure and absorption. It's just a deeper, more stable experience than the first jhana. In the first jhana, the mind will like jump away from the pleasure and start to wander a little bit and you'll have to pull it back. It doesn't wander a lot, but it, it will jump away for like a second and you'll have to kind of be like, whoa, no, come back. We're in jhana. We don't want to do that. What happens is that second jhana is just a stable, deeper more intensive experience than the first jhana. And in the second jhana, there's a real sense of stability where you can kind of lay back into the meditative state and know it's going to last for a while. It just feels stable. And you'll know what this is like when you get there. But the second jhana is literally just a deeper experience of the first jhana. And in the second jhana, it becomes more calm, becomes clearer. And the more you move between them, the easier it is to tell the difference. Well, I won't go into the differences in detail tonight, but I just wanted to show you how this progresses so you can at least hear the instructions. Now, you're in second jhana, which is this full absorption, very stable, very calm. And what happens at this point is the rapture feeling begins to feel like it's agitating. It begins to feel that it's not as pleasant as it was before. It's almost like you would like to get it to calm down a little bit. You start to notice that rapture has a sense of dukkha within it. And this is a conscious experience. You'll start to feel the second jhana starts to feel unpleasant a little bit. That's how you know to go into the third jhana. The rapture starts to feel agitating. It almost feels coarse or like it's kind of overwhelming and you wish you could just dial it down a notch. And that's exactly what you do. 
to move from second jhana into third jhana, you literally locate the rapture and you turn it down because it's agitating. Sometimes it's um, the instructions are you let it go. You let go of the PT and you find refuge just in the sukha. And I can't explain it beyond that in, for the time we have tonight, but basically you be able to see that in that moment, rapture feels a little unpleasant and sukha feels a little more pleasant. And so you lean into the more calm pleasure because that's what feels, feels good. So moving from second to third jhana, you let go of rapture. Rapture becomes a little agitating and you turn it down or let it go. And then you just sit in third jhana. Third jhana is just, you'll notice here, one pointed attention is always in the jhana because that's the, the unification. So you're always saturated with these experiences. The one pointedness is always saturation. So in the third jhana, the distinction is there isn't the rapture. It's a it's a more of a sense of calm and ease and restfulness. There isn't an uplifting energy. That's gone now. You've turned that down. You've let that go. And now you're in a deep space of calm and one-pointedness. Now, again, what starts to happen after a certain period of time is sukha is now going to feel a little agitating. And what's really happening here is that what your mind is seeing clearly is that pleasure has dukkha in it. What, and what, first, what at first appeared to be pleasurable and euphoric with a clearer mind is actually a form of suffering. So you're letting go of suffering as you move through the jhanas to get to deeper and deeper peace. So third jhana, like second jhana, the pleasure begins to feel agitating. And when it begins to feel agitating, you then let go of it. You let go of the pleasure and you see what's underneath. That's the best way I can describe it. As you let go of the pleasure because it's agitating, what reveals itself is equanimity. Equanimity is beneath sukha and rapture all along. You just can't see it because the mind isn't concentrated enough. As you move through the jhanas, each jhana is more concentrated, so it's more clear, more equanimous. Sometimes people say the journey from first jhana to fourth jhana is a journey to equanimity. And so from third jhana to fourth jhana, you let go of the sukha and you rest in equanimity. No craving, no aversion, no rapture, no pleasure. What it is, is stilling the fluctuations of consciousness. It's just peaceful with no craving or aversion at all. The mind just becomes completely still. Sometimes it feels like you're bathed in a, a white light, but there's no ripples in consciousness. The mind doesn't wander, doesn't desire anything. There's really no thinking at all. It's just a sense of peace that is deeply still. That's the fourth jhana. And according to the Buddha, the fourth jhana is... The equanimity of the fourth jhana is purity of mindfulness. You cannot have more mindfulness than you can have in the fourth jhana. Mindfulness has peaked in fourth jhana. And when you look at the eightfold path, we know that concentration is one of the folds of the path. And the maturity of that fold is described as the equanimity of jhana. 
Once the mind is fully balanced and at ease in equanimity, there's nowhere else to go. It's just peaceful. So this is how jhana is described. And as I said before, it's complicated. It's a lot of information. And I know that it's like, what are you talking about? But I wanted to get us in so you can kind of get a feel for how this process works. Okay. So that's what I wanted to get through this evening. I just wanted to give you this overview of how the process of jhana works. We will go deeper and we will talk about more clearly the practice of it, how to do it. Um, this upcoming year, I'd like to do a jhana retreat so we could spend a full day just working on these practices. I think that would be fun. I like I like those kind of retreats a lot. I wanted to read a couple quotes from the Buddha to wrap this up this evening because I really think it's important to see how much the Buddha spoke about the benefits of this practice. So without trying to knock my microphone into my lap, here are some quotes that I think are significant. And then I'll give you a, free res uh, a, a few resources um, that you might want to check out as far as books on the jhanas. So this is from the Buddha. I considered, could jhana be the path to enlightenment? Then came the realization this is the path to enlightenment. So the Buddha's path is a path of jhana. The traditional path really does include jhana as a standard practice. And I think that's something important to remember. Here's another really interesting quote. There are five detrimental things that lead to the decay and disappearance of the true dharma. What are the five? Here, the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis dwell without reverence and deference towards the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and without reverence and deference towards concentration. These are the five detrimental things that lead to the decay and disappearance of the true Dharma. To me, that's pretty heavy. You're basically saying that what leads to the decay of the Dharma is a misunderstanding of Buddha Dharma Sangha, which is our triple, triple refuge, right? Our triple gem. And a lack of understanding or reference for the path of concentration. That to me is a really interesting quote. Just showing the significance of how the jhana plays itself out in these teachings. And I'll give you one more. If my cat bookmark holds up. All right, here we go. Last one. Jhana is called the pleasure of renunciation, the pleasure of seclusion, the pleasure of peace, the pleasure of enlightenment. I say of this kind of pleasure that it should be pursued, that it should be developed, that it should be cultivated, that it should not be feared. Just as the river Ganges slants, slopes, and inclines toward the east, so too one who develops and cultivates the four jhanas slants, slopes and inclines toward nirvana. Okay. <laughs> I know that's a lot of information, but we're on the road. We're on the road. Next time we meet, we will do some Q and A around jhana. And I'll talk a little bit more about practices. 
what it takes to be able to experience it. And we'll do more of group discussion around it so we can clarify how this practice works. But the main take home for today is to just know that the jhana factors arise right out of your meditation practice, right out of the practice that you're already doing. You just do a few little tweaks because you're now at a deeper level of experience. And as the jhana factors become mature, you're just cultivating the enlightenment factors. And I will um, send you a little handout that will show you the correlation between the jhana factors and the enlightenment factors and the correlation between which enlightenment, uh, which jhana factors replace the hindrances. And when you look at it on paper, it's really straightforward. So I will put those in the show notes for um, the podcast for this week. And with the holiday, uh, we're going to try and publish the podcast um, tomorrow since we'll be gone for the weekend. So we will be meeting next week. It will be the last week of the year for Wednesday Wake Up. Yay. Oh my gosh, another year. So next week, I would like to do a little bit of Q&A around this. Um, between now and then, hey, if you're going to get on the cushion, try out a few of the things I talked about so you can have some experience, see what happens when you try to find PT and Suka, see what happens when you try to use gratitude to cultivate the sensations. And uh, let's share a little bit for those who will be here. And um, we'll also do some end of year review, meaning we'll do some contemplation. We'll do a little guided meditation on uh, the year and then I'll see you after the year. We are past time. I apologize. Only by three minutes, though. For those who need to leave, thank you so much for hanging with us. For those who can stay, we'll do meta for a few minutes before we close. Thank you so much, my friends, for joining us this evening. Let's fall back into presence. Take a long, slow, deep breath in, in through the mouth, I'm sorry, in through the nose, and out through the mouth, relaxing fully into body. Make a gentle effort to notice the inherent pleasure in just being awake and aware to what's arising in this moment. Right here, right now, no duties or obligations. Just being here present with body breathing. There is a pleasure in present moment awareness. Notice how the body and mind feel in this moment. Let go of any tension any distraction. Let's remind ourselves that while we come week to week and sitting in our cushion and working in group practice for our own well-being, our highest aspiration is that we can show up in the world as kind, loving beings awake and aware, and that all beings may share in the merits of our practice, experiencing true love, true kindness, 
and full liberation in this life. Let us take a minute or two to wish well for all beings. Let us wish that all beings are free from harm. Let us aspire that the planet, our home, be free from harm. May all beings be free from danger, worry, and concern. May all beings be filled with grace and ease and know the comforts of loving and being loved. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you, my friends, for choosing to spend the evening with us. Much love to you. Be safe. Be well. Hope to see you next week. But if you're on vacation and visiting with family, I'll see you the week after. Take care of yourselves. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.